Avengers, assemble. In the wake of Endgame, some were lost, others regained. They're good. What happens next? Stay tuned, true believers, as we try to find out. Peter Melnick. Graphic designer, comic book enthusiast, and podcast pontificator. And I'm Eddie Wilson. Upstate New York radio announcer in the Sullivan Catskills with an inordinate amount of catching up in his own comic book universe. Ready? It's time for a new episode of The Marvelists. Hi, this is Mark Evanier. I do Gru the Wanderer and the Garfield cartoons and all sorts of stuff. You're listening to The Marvelists with Peter Melnick and Eddie Wilson. I am not ready to be without you. You're a good man, with a good heart. And it's hard for a good man to be king. Your very existence is wrapped up in the things you are here to fulfill. The struggles along the way are only meant to shape you for your purpose. Sometimes you need to feel the pain and sting of defeat to activate the real passion and purpose that God predestined inside of you. I cannot stay here with you. As you commence to your past, press on with pride and press on with purpose. In my culture, death is not the end. It's more of a stepping off point. Wakanda forever! Welcome, everyone, to The Marvelist, the Marvel Universe podcast. I'm Peter Melnick. And I'm Eddie Wilson. And before we get into the usual rigmarole of today's episode and introducing our very special guest, we want to tell you all at home how you can get hold of us on them that are social medias. I want to do a Shatner a little bit. And even if, yeah, we don't have the visual, and even if they're not home, but go ahead. Go on Facebook at facebook.com slash The Marvelists. Give us a like ski on there. Go on Twitter and Instagram at The Marvelists. And individually on social media, myself, I'm on Facebook at facebook.com slash Peter Melnick Podcaster, Twitter and Instagram at Peter Melnick, and I'm on TikTok for some reason. I don't know why, but... Uh, it's a trap! It, it, it's awful. <laughs> but you can find me on there at Peter Melnick, but better. Seriously, that's the name I went with. Because Peter Melnick was already taken. Don't follow them. They suck. But... Wow. I mean, I do too, but... You know, levels of suckage, I guess. Stop. <laughs> you can also find Eddie on social media, and that is on Instagram. And it's the only place in the whole worldwide interwebs. It's and enough. that is at... Eddie9193. Instagram, Instagram, Instagram. IG, like the cool kids say nowadays, I guess. I don't know. Ig. Yeah. That, that, that's when you, like, scroll through Instagram and you find out, like, a disgusting funny girl, like, Ig. No, it's usually you. Or, yeah. Which is Eddie Wilson, abbreviated, initialized. I'll never forget when I saw the Entertainment Weekly logo of EW, and you're like, ooh, I'm taking that. <laughs> but again, I digress. Yes. Yep. But you can also find us on a wide variety of listening and streaming platforms, TuneIn Radio, Stitcher Radio, Podbean, SoundCloud, etc., etc. Available for all iOS and Android devices. And additionally, go on iTunes where you can rate, review, and subscribe, share it on social media. And with that iTunes thing, be sure to give us five stars because... Guess what, Eddie? Four stars below is like the ice cream machine in McDonald's. I'm on the pay-no-mind list from this man. <laughs> this is the Scott Shannon pay-no-mind list. Wow. <laughs> 
much like the ice cream machine at McDonald's, four stars or below, just does not work. <gasps> Sorry, I just wanted to breathe deeply. Anyway, <sighs> he's sitting on the other end of the tin can and string. We are joined with a legend in the comic book industry. We are joined with Mark Evanier. Mark, good evening. Oh, thank you. I'm not a legend. A legend is like Paul Bunyan who didn't exist. Wow, look at that. But you got five stars for pronouncing my last name right, so that's fine. Especially on the first time call- when I called you earlier, I was like, it is Mark Evanier, right? That's right. <laughs> Eddie? Y- yes, we know how to say my name and Mark's <laughs> name now that we have that all terrific. God. <laughs> well, hot on the heels of the episode of Talking to Tom Scholey and the Jack Kirby book, we definitely wanted to get you in line here, Mark as being a former um, assistant to, to Jack Kirby. And I guess where, where it started is where we want to uh, begin with, with yourself. Sure. What do you want to talk about? How you got into the biz and your interest got, and what you grew up with comic-wise. And... Well, I've had more, as long as I've been on this planet, I've had more comic books than anybody else I knew. Uh, I tell people that when I was born, the doctor slapped me and I dropped a copy of Walt Disney's comics and stories. <laughs> I don't know what the first one was. I was too young to special note of it, but I always had uh, every comic book I could get, my hands on, uh, huge collections of them, uh, I was fascinated by them, but for a long time I did not think I would ever work in the field, mm-hmm. because every time I read an interview with anyone who did, they said, well, you have to live in New York, and I live in Los Angeles, I was born out here, and I had no desire to uh, move back to New York, and I also... Um, was not interested in only writing comic books. I started getting interested at a young age in writing maybe television or cartoons or novels. Or, I just like writing. I mean, it, 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 for a long time I would tell people uh, from about age six on, uh, I want to be a writer. And they say, oh, what do you want to write? And I said, I haven't figured that part out yet. Mm. And um, so I didn't think about getting into comic books, partly because of that the geographic problem, partly because I didn't want to only get into comic books, and partly because I also read articles about guys like Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, who were living in exile from their creation, and they had not been treated very well, in my opinion, by the companies that they made wealthy. So one day, I met this man named Jack Kirby. Prior to meeting Jack, I had actually submitted a few things to the comic book industry, because I had written a lot of letters to the letter pages of DC and Marvel Comics and had quite a few printed, which I took as an enormous point of pride, like, wow, my letters stood out from the huge piles. And I later learned as I got into the field, the piles weren't that huge, and most of the letters were in crayon. So it wasn't that hard to get into a letter page when I was doing it. But um, a couple of the editors I was writing to asked me to submit scripts to them, and I did. And uh, three different editors accepted the scripts and then didn't. They, they said, oh, we wanna, we're going to buy this, and then they didn't. Oh, we're definitely going to publish this, and then they didn't. So I just did that kind of for fun and for practice. And then uh, in, uh, the, uh, in July of 1969, uh, I met Jack Kirby. I was the president of a comic book club in Los Angeles. And on the July 4th weekend of that year, there was a thing in Santa Monica called the Westercon. It was a local science fiction convention. This is before there were ever comic book conventions in the state of California. But a lot of the members of our club 
who were interested in comic books were also interested in science fiction, and they went to this uh, con. It was at a hotel in Santa Monica, and Jack Kirby and his wife Roz showed up. Jack had recently moved from New York to Southern California and was looking to meet some of the local writers and artists with an eye towards maybe setting up some sort of a situation where he could mentor young writers and artists and have them work for him and train them, which is kind of what he and Joe Simon had done back in the 40s. They had a little shop that produced comics for different publishers. They were the bosses, and they hired writers and artists who worked under their tutelage and supervision. I was not at that convention, but some of the other officers of our club were, and they met Jack, which was very exciting for them. They'd never met anybody who actually wrote or drew a comic book before. And Jack invited them down to his house, which was then in Irvine, California, as a temporary residence, while the Kirby's looked for something permanent in, in Southern California. And since I was the president of the club, I went along, and I spent a day with Jack Kirby. And I knew it was a very monumental day for me, but I didn't realize how much my life changed that day. Because Jack and I got along well, he liked me, he looked at some of the writing I had done, which I brought along, I brought along some fanzines I've written for, and he liked that. And he recommended me for some jobs, and several months later, uh, Jack and uh, Roz came into the place where I was working, which was a thing called Marvel Mania. It was like a Marvel mail, a mail order firm selling Marvel merchandise, and they took us out to lunch. Myself, myself, and a fellow named Steve Sherman, who also worked there. And Jack said, uh, "Swore us to secrecy," and said, "I'm leaving Marvel for DC." This would be a February of 1970, and uh, I'm going to need some assistance with what I do. I'm not sure what's going to happen, but would you guys be interested in working with me? And it took us a long time to decide to say yes. I think it took a half a second. (laughs) And um, for a month, we sat on the biggest secret in comics, Jack Kirby, leaving Marvel. I don't know if people today can appreciate how earth-shattering that was at the time. That was... Uh, I can't think of a single thing that could happen in the industry today that would get make as many headlines and make the industry quake the way it did when, it, when in March, Jack informed Marvel that he was quitting and going to work for DC. And suddenly I was in comic books, working with him, and that led to working for other comic books and other, with other people and working for other companies. And uh, you want to talk about, you don't really need, need to hear about my, my career. You want to talk about Jack's, it's way more interesting. Well, actually, when you started uh, at the point where you realized, Mark, that you wanted to write, did you have, um, if you had your choice, let's put it that way, of what type of writing you would prefer to do or or get the most enjoyment out of writing, what type of prose would that be? Well, I didn't think it worked that way. I kind of thought, like, let's wait and see what becomes viable, what's available to me. If If you should let me to my own devices... There was a moment when I wanted nothing more than to work for Hanna-Barbera on the cartoon shows I loved, and eventually I did work for Hanna-Barbera. Uh, there was a day in my life, another life-changing day of, of many, where I went to see an episode of the Dick Van Dyke show being filmed. It was already my favorite show, but going to the set, meeting the cast, watching how they filmed the show, seeing Mary Tyler Moore in person, which was a stunning moment for any young man of that age, uh, that made me want to get into television. And at other times, I would you know, be reading a lot of novels and saying, gee, I want to write novels. And 
so my interests were all over the place. Eventually, I've gotten to do most of those things. Uh, but my attitude when I was growing up was, well, let's see if I could get into television. Let's see if they'll let me in. Let's see if I could write for cartoons. I was kind of willing to take anything on the list as long as it was a writing job because I knew I'd enjoy any of them. I see one among the uh, the TV shows that you did, and that was Welcome Back, Cotter. Any backstory on that? Oh, well, I was a story editor and writer on Welcome Back, Cotter for one year, the second season. And um, what had happened, I'd started writing TV shows with a fellow named Dennis Palumbo, who I met a young, you know, at that time, young comedy writers came in pairs. People hired teams. And Dennis went looking for a, team, a partner because he wanted to be a comedy writer. And we met, and we hit it off, and we wrote together for a couple years. We're still friends. But um, we had written a few different things for different shows, and the people at Welcome Back, Cotter, knew of us and needed some new writers, and they hired us. And another show that you wrote for that's a big part of my childhood, Garfield and Friends. Yeah, I, I was the... Um, showrunner on the Garfield and Friends show, and uh, uh, that came up. I wrote a lot of cartoon shows. I wrote for every studio that was then in business. I sued one or two of them. Uh, and uh, uh, one day CBS asked me to write the Garfield. They wanted to do a new uh, show of Garfield. Garfield had previously only been on uh, primetime specials. And Jim Davis, the creator of Garfield, had written those specials. CBS was pestering him to let them do a Saturday morning show. And Jim said, I, can't, I don't have time to write a Saturday morning show, uh, so we won't do it. And they said, look, if we find a writer you would trust, who you like, would you do it? And Jim said, well, yeah, but I don't think you can find such a person. And CBS hired me to write something of Garfield. They sent it to Jim, and we had a show. He agreed to let me do it. And one of the trademarks of the Garfield and Friends series was always in the opening, you know, with the come on in, come to the place where fun never yeah. ends, boop, boop. Um, I'm really, really proud that I got to sing that to a Garfield and Friends writer. <laughs> you have no idea. Um, but one of the things about that was always the end of the theme song. It would be like a little uh, ad lib. With, yeah. or was, was it an ad lib or did you guys like write all oh, the... Oh, no, no, uh, we wrote all those. I, I went in one day and I said, Garfield's mouth doesn't move. Um, because in theory, you're not hearing him speak, you're hearing him think. Right. Although in later Garfield shows, that, that little distinction has gone away a bit. But at that time, the idea was that Garfield's mouth didn't move, so we could put anything in there. It didn't cause, we didn't have to reanimate it every week. And I said, let's put a, a joke to button the, uh, uh, the opening titles so that hopefully people will go, oh, I haven't seen this one. And they won't have to wait through the first commercial to see if it's an episode they saw before. So every you know, couple of weeks, I'd write 20 lines, and we'd have Lorenzo Music record them, and we'd use half of them, maybe, or whatever. We, we, just, we, did, we threw a lot of them away. Um, somebody on YouTube compiled a video of every opening line. They went through with an edit. And spent, I don't know why they, anybody would have enough time to do this, but they put together all the opening lines into a montage, and I discovered I'd repeated a few. That was the first time I realized, anybody realized I'd repeated a few jokes in it. Um, and, uh, but that was, a, you know, that was just something to plus the show to make it a little more interesting. Well, and we got in trouble for a couple of those lines. We actually 
uh, one of them, I think the Wall Street Journal, um, covered when uh, uh, one week I had Garfield say, uh, and hello to all you wonderful Nielsen families out there. Oh, God. Nielsen families mean the families that have reading yeah. devices on their sets. And NBC complained <laughs> that, that you're not supposed to, to, to do things like to call special attention to yourself. I'd never heard of that law or rule. So that episode ended up, we had to replace the line in that one. And then another week, um, NBC dropped their Saturday morning lineup at one point. They got rid of all the cartoon shows. So for the first show that season, I had Garfield come out and say, don't bother watching NBC, kids. There's no more cartoons over there. And NBC called in a fury and demanded we take that line out. (laughs) My go-to one that, you know, my best friend that I always reference is the, hey, you with the gum in the back, I hope you brought enough for everybody. And yeah, it's just there's something about that that unique. Uh, every single episode has a different one. And what were some of your favorite ones that you had written? Oh boy, I don't remember. Um, you know, I read so many of them, and I, I actually not even sure which ones got on the shows because I, um, I liked one time we had Garfield. Well, I liked the two I just cited because they caused trouble. But um, <laughs> I liked the one where Garfield uh, said. Uh, don't try this at home, kids. Uh, we're cartoon characters, oh, God. or something like that. And there's another one where uh, um, he said, uh, "Oh, why am I not remembering my own material?" <laughs> it's, uh, it's been a while. You can see how, mem- you can see how memorable it is. Um, I liked um, um, the one where he told the kids to just pull the knobs off the set so they're tuned to CBS next week. And, That's a good idea. Uh, I like, yeah, and I like the one where he. Uh, Said, you know, uh, Garfield and Friends was recorded before an animated studio audience. <laughs> uh, yeah, I know. They're all they're they're six second gags. They're they're only <laughs> they're only worth, they're not worth a lot of thought. Yeah, just little little one shot rim shot things, and boom, you move on, right? And it's, yeah, it, that's right. Yeah, but it's funny that you know it's it's a quick one two three gag, but yet we literally just spent about five or six minutes talking about something like that. The impact of writing like that and that's you know it's the magic of the uh, comedic writing and one it's fascinating. It's fascinating what people respond to. Right. Um, you mentioned Welcome Back, Cotter. There was an episode that uh, Dennis and I, I think we rewrote this. I don't think we wrote this episode, but by the time it was on the air, it was mostly ours. Where um, the character of Horshack gets into a boxing ring, and at Four o'clock in the morning, literally, when Dennis and I are at the studio rewriting and fixing scripts and punching up jokes, and I was ready to fall asleep, I turned to Dennis and said, you know what this episode needs? It needs cheerleaders. We need to put some cheerleaders by the, the boxing ring who will cheer Korshak on. And Dennis says, cheerleaders? Okay, if you want, put them in. And uh, so I wrote, uh, I typed there are four girls in cheerleader costumes, and they get up and they say, Horseshack, Horseshack, we're with you. Rock 'em, sock 'em, ooh, ooh, ooh. Ooh, ooh being his catchphrase. Yes. yes. So the next day I walk in, and there's four girls. They've hired four girls. They're in cheerleader costumes. They brought in a choreographer. I had just, not realizing it, I had just spent about $4,000 <laughs> of the show's money. And the, producer, the associate producer came up to me and said, you know, we could have done this with three girls. 
So it's in the episode. If you ever see that, if you ever see that episode and you see those girls do that, that's where it came from. Mm-hmm. About six months later, um, remember they used to do these things, the Battle of the Network Stars. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I was up at Pepperdine University with Gabe Kaplan. He was the ABC team captain, and I was helping him out with jokes and things. And I was basically there to write insults of Howard Cosell, who was the MC. And uh, Gabe and I are walking past the bleachers. We're full of college students. And about 30 girls stand up, and when they see him, and they go, Cotter, Cotter, we're with you. Rock em, sock em. Ooh, ooh, ooh. <laughs> and I was just stunned by that. And Gabe turned to me and said, didn't you write that? And I actually said, yes, I wonder where they heard it. And Gabe said, maybe they own television sets, you schmuck. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Because it had not dawned on me, you know, the the penetration, to use a non-dirty term here, that these things get. Um, That people hear these things. And if they're laughing in the studio audience, which they were at that, Somebody's laughing at home somewhere, and that and you know people will quote lines from shows years later and such. And I, when people sometimes when people would meet me and they'd say, "Did you write that TV show? Yeah. Did you write the joke with so and so?" And 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 you know you you suddenly realize this thing has a reach, right? Uh, that is rather stunning. It, it, it's it's logical. You think I wouldn't be surprised, but I was. And in regards to, you know, comedic writing, of course, one of your claims to fame is you are the writing partner alongside Sergio Aragones with Grew the Wanderer. And how- Is that what I do? Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah, I guess that's what I do, kind of. Yeah. How did that come about? How did that relationship come about? And how, like, damn, you guys do good funny books. Oh, thank you. Oh, well, if you remember, I mentioned earlier that I was president of a comic book club when I was 17. So a local comic book club that met now every Saturday we met at a public park, and Sergio came to one of our meetings as a guest speaker. He's the only guest speaker we ever had. Mm. I met him there briefly, and we hit it off. And then I ran into him a number of other places um, over the years. We just kept bumping into each other. We literally, in the summer of 1970, Steve Sherman, my then partner, and I were in New York for to attend my first ever comic book convention. This was on the July 4th weekend, back there at what is now the Hotel Pennsylvania. And we went to the D.C. Comics offices the first day there, and we went to the Mar... We were supposed to go to the Marvel offices and meet Stan Lee the second day there. And we had an appointment to see him at 10.30. And just as we were about to leave the hotel, his secretary called and said, he's got an important meeting can you come at 3 o'clock? So now we suddenly had a couple of hours to kill in New York. So we went sightseeing. We stopped walking around New York, looking at stores and things. It was my first time in New York as an adult. It was fascinating. And we're walking down Madison Avenue, and we got to the corner of, I think it was 47th or 48th, and I hear someone yell, Mi amigos, and across the street is Sergio. <laughs> I didn't know how he, I don't rem, I was surprised that he recognized me, remembered me, and that he saw me across Madison Avenue, which is not a small street. Yeah. And we ran over there and saw him. And, you know, he said, oh, you're in town for the convention. Oh, yeah. And, and we, I said, yeah, we were at the D.C. offices yesterday. We're going to Marvel later today. 
He says, have you visited the Mad offices? Did you plan to visit the Mad Magazine offices? And I was a lifetime fan of Mad Magazine. I have a complete collection of Mad Magazine. I consider myself one of the world's experts on Mad Magazine. Um, But it had not dawned on me that on this trip, maybe we might get to go to the Mad offices. And I said, no, really, where are the Mad offices? He says, you're standing right in front of them. Oh, boy. And he took us in. And on the way in... Uh, there's this little sad-faced man with an art portfolio walking out. And I said, that's Wally Wood. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> we just saw Wally Wood there. He he was visiting the office. He no longer worked for MAD, but he was up there trying to convince them to finance a project of his. And then we got went in and met the MAD staff and spent a couple of hours with Al Feldstein and Jerry DeFuscio and Nick Meglin, all of whom became good friends of mine, and Bill Gaines and John Putnam, and, you know, people like that who, who did MAD. At one point, Sergio opened a drawer in the art department, one of these big flat files where you store artwork, and he pulled out a pile of artwork, and he handed me, put in my arms, the complete original art to MAD number one. Wow. And he said, you may look at it, but you may not keep it. <laughs> and I said, if I had a gun, I could keep it. And I spent one of the more amazing 20 minutes of my life standing there at these at this desk looking at the paging through the original artwork to the first issue of mad a, a comic i had read you know hundreds of times by then and just being fascinated by looking at all the little details in the margins and and realizing when you see artwork like that you can't help but think my god these artists are way better than even i thought mm-hmm. because you know the printing on comics back then was pretty rotten um, you couldn't see half of what they put into it. So anyway, Sergio and I just ended up hanging around throughout the convention and became good friends. And in, uh, eventually, he created this character named Gru the Wanderer. He wanted to own his own character because Sergio, by virtue of you know, being Sergio was all over the world at the time. He was a world traveler. He was known in every country. He speaks about seven languages. Uh, fortunately, usually one of them is English. <laughs> but uh, he um, would meet all the great cartoonists around the world, and they all, they all owned their own characters. And he said, well, if they all own their own characters, I should own my own character. So he played around with some different ideas, and he came up with this character named Gruen. He was, and I, I still have a folder here that he gave me of, you know, 80 ske- rough sketches of Gru that he did on um, typing paper or the, the stationery of whatever, whatever job he was working at, because he was running a lot of working in television a bit as an actor and as a, a gag man. So I've got all this stuff on Dick Clark's old stationery or George Schlatter's old stationery of Gru sketches. And he refined the character out, And then one day, I was involved in a project called Destroyer Duck. Uh, My friend Steve Gerber, who created Howard the Duck, was locked in a lawsuit with Marvel. And uh, uh, essentially what was happening was that Marvel was trying to make it so expensive for him that he would drop the suit, which is a not uncommon legal strategy in this country. And a bunch of us decided to do a benefit comic book to put some, you know... You know, if, it would have been one thing if Steve lost his case because he had no legal merit, but he was on the verge of losing it because he had less money than Marvel. And that didn't seem like a good reason to, you know, to, to 
drop a case. So we did this benefit comic. Jack Kirby drew the lead story, which was uh, uh, 20 pages for free. He, he, he believed in Steve's cause enough, and then Alfredo Alcala offered ink it for nothing. An extraordinary gesture. And Steve and I were the editors of the book. We put it together. And I went to Sergio, who I knew had drawn one short Gru story to that day. He'd done a lot of sketches and concept drawings and covers, but he'd only drawn one actual narrative story. And I said, I want to run it and destroy a duck. And he said, here, go, run it, please. So we published that story, which had no words in it, so therefore I had no contribution from me in it. And suddenly everybody is calling Sergio saying, we want to do this comic. Where, where is this? Where can we see the next issue? We want to do this. And he came to me one day and he said, I can't do this alone. Will you be my partner? And again, I thought it over for a long time. I thought it over for like you know, one, one and a half seconds and said yes. And that's roughly the story of how it started. And the Gru is a character that's been all over the map in terms of all the different companies. You know, Gru's been with Marvel through the Epic line and I believe the main Marvel line as well. Uh, Pacific Comics, what else? Well, we, we started with Pacific Comics. We did eight issues with them, and they went out of business. Then we did one special issue with Eclipse, and then they went out of business. They had a flood, actually, which put them out of business. Mm. And then we went to uh, a, a lovely woman named Carol Kalish, who left this earth far too soon, uh, came to me and said, you guys are, you know, need a home. Marvel's got this new thing called Epic Comics for creator-owned comics. I think you should be there. So... We took Marvel there, took Gru there, and we were on their epic line. We did ten, we did 120 issues over 120 months um, for Epic. Never missed a deadline. Never had a fill-in. Never had a reprint. Uh, and uh, at the end of that, Epic was kind of falling apart, and Marvel was in financial trouble. And we, Gru's luck was holding. He was destroying another company, so we moved it over to Image for a year. And that didn't work out the way as well as we liked. And then Dark Horse came and said, we want it. And we've been with Dark Horse ever since. And over like the past year, I don't know if you had seen the rumor, and it's just a rumor. It's just, you know, again, bull hockey. But they there was a rumor going around that they were considering bringing Gru into the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And... I don't even know. <laughs> I don't... That's one of those. That's one of those. Gee, nobody ever talked to us about it. Yeah. Stories. Mm -hmm. uh, there were people at Marvel or at the various companies that deal with Marvel. You know, the Marvel, the word name Marvel covers a vast number of offices and people and departments, and a lot of them don't talk to each other. Uh, there were people at every place who wanted to do Gru as a movie. We've been through quite a few different developments and scripts and various things and uh, uh, but you know I, I don't think any of them got close enough where it was proper to say it was likely now Sergio's known for his ability to draw really really fast and hit all the deadlines do you think he could animate it all on his own because I, I think no, he could no Sergio's <laughs> not an animator mm. uh, no, nor is he you know, you know. I'll say this as delicate as I can. Sergio is getting on in years. Right. He's he's very young for a guy of his his numerical age. He's in great health. He's. A, I wish I was in health that good, but um, he's not going to you know sit at the drawing table for uh, you know in you know, twenty hours a day anymore. 
one of the secrets of people who are fast is not just that they draw fast, but that they are willing to sit at their drawing tables for very, very long periods. When I worked with Jack Kirby, people would always tell about how fast he was, and how fast, oh my goodness, he's the fastest guy who ever lived. Well, yeah, but part of that was a function of being willing to get up in the morning, go to the drawing table, and stay there till four in the morning. Um, you know, I, I, have, I have enormous admiration for Jack on 15 different levels, and one of them is his work habits. One of which is his ability, his willingness to sit there and do a page over and over and to put more things into it and to not shortcut anything, uh, even if that meant, you know, he doesn't get to bed till you know, 5 a.m. Um, and Sergio has that same, you know, born to draw, loves to draw, um, you know, Sergio and I constantly are eating in restaurants together, and I have a whole file of napkins I took home of him doodling on. <laughs> he just starts drawing without even realizing it sometimes. And so, you know, he, he, we would not ever attempt to have him do all the artwork for a group cartoon series, but we would have him do the key art and to supervise it and, you know, his designs, because that's, that's the world of Gru. The world of Gru looks like something drawn by Sergio. And one of the things about the character is the iconic, identifiable style. And if a movie were to ever happen down the line, it's one of those, could it be a 2D movie, you know, with traditional animation, or could it be a CGI movie? Well, it would probably be, a, if we did an animation of Gru, and it's been talked about, obviously, it would almost certainly be a CGI movie, because that's the only way you could do, um, you know, thousands of soldiers on the battlefield. Right. Uh, uh, you know, it's one thing for Sergio to draw a crowd scene that's got you know a hundred people in it. He just has to draw it once. But if you put a hundred people on the on a, on a movie screen, they you know they've got to be drawn over and over and over again. We have a dog called Roferto that has spots on it. If you did it in CGI, they have to do one computer model of the spotted dog, and then you know they can from the, from there on they can turn them around, and nobody has to draw spots on every single drawing. Right. So that's the reason, and also we like CGI if it's done well, which sometimes it is not. Uh, but, you know, the last Garfield series I did was in CGI. The first Garfield series, Garfield and Friends, was in traditional line animation. And then they came back to me a few years later and said, we need to do a new show. So we did a couple hundred episodes in full, very expensive CGI. And I started out kind of skeptical, but I learned to love it because of... I, there were things I could write and put into it, including huge crowd scenes. I mean, it, it's, you know, I just, I wrote one time, I just sat here and wrote um, that somebody had cloned Garfield and there were 600 Garfields on the screen, you know, or something like that. That takes about three minutes to do in CGI. It takes an awful long time to do in line animation. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, you know, you mentioned about the CGI animation and it would be a great way also to maintain the level of the style because, you know, of Sergio's style, because you look at the Peanuts movie that came out a few years ago from, I believe, uh, Blue Sky Studios, and it emulated Schultz's style 100%. Yeah. Also, you know, Sergio would have to do some drawings of Gru that they could turn into computer models, and he'd have to approve the final version, and then we're done. He doesn't have to approve every new drawing done of Gru for the project. And so, it's funny because, you know, you're involved with, you know, you were involved with Jack and you're involved with Sergio and it's, 
the level of you're no you're partnered up with two of some of the most iconic people in the comic book industry. Sergio being, you know, for the comedic aspect, Kirby being known for the action oriented superhero kind of stuff. Yeah, well, you know, I've been very fortunate. I've gotten to work with most of my heroes, and not just in comic books, but on television and cartoons. And um, I've gotten to work with some very brilliant people. Um, the word genius is thrown around with way too abandon. People use it way too often, like you introduce me as a legend. That's, I'm sorry, that's... <laughs> who is not a legend in this world right now? You know, I've got a legendary plumber who fixes my iconic toilet. Uh, but uh, the word genius should be saved for people like Jack Kirby and Sergio. And, you know, in cartoons, I got to work with Tex Avery and with Bill Hanna and Joe Barbera. And I got to know some of the other guys. I got to work with Mel Blanc and Dawes Butler and June Foray, the great cartoon voice actors of, of the first generation of cartoon voice actors. And I've worked with people equally brilliant from other generations. Did you ever and meet in comic him? books? Comic books. I worked uh, a lot with a man named Dan Spiegel, who I think was as good as anybody who ever drew a comic book. Who wasn't involved? You know, in his case, he was not involved in the writing much, if any. But um, I was never happier than when a script of mine was being drawn by Dan. And I worked with a wonderful fellow named Will Minio for a long time, who was just, he was a very good artist and a very good friend, and a lot of good people. I don't want to start giving an exhaustive list because I'll leave people out. But um, there's lots of talented people around, and it energizes you to work with them. And if they become your friends, so much the better. And you have a great working relationship. Sergio's been my best friend for you know, 30 years. I say he's my, be my best friend who has facial hair for about 30 years. You know, he's, he's uh, a charming, funny man. And, and don't let him hear this podcast. <laughs> doesn't know how much I like him. And it's funny that you mentioned that, you know, you're partners with him in regards to, the, you know, your comic work and whatnot. You mentioned earlier, it's, you know, the comedic partners in television writing back in the day. It's kind of funny that, you know, you brought that over into comics as well. Well, these are collaborative mediums. And actually, one of the nice things about comic books is that, you know, you collaborate, but you collaborate with three or four people. Uh, you buy an issue of Gru, and of course you do, um, you know, it represents the work of Mark and Sergio, and uh, Stan Sakai does the lettering, and Tom Luth generally does the coloring. And, you know, while other people contribute, you know, somebody types such thing, and, you know, people print it, and, you know, so whatever it is, essentially what you get is about the work of about four or five people. Right. If you watch a TV show that I wrote, I am one of, you know, 80 people who's responsible for what's on the screen, and... Mm -hmm. Sometimes it doesn't resemble that much what I had in mind. A few minutes ago, you had mentioned working with Dan Spiegel, and we ended up fielding a question over on the Cartoonist Cafe Bringside Seats group, and one of the questions comes from Chris Pitzer. What is your favorite Dan Spiegel collaboration? With me, it was a book I did called Crossfire with him, and if Dan were alive, he would say, give you the same answer. We love doing that comic. Um, it sold well for a while, and then took a nosedive near the end as the business kind of contracted. We, it was a bad period. And, and I wrote the last six of the issues for nothing because I love doing it so much. And I assisted, and Dan volunteered not to be paid, but I assisted he get paid because I had uh, other sources of income. But I just loved writing it. It was just fun. I, but I also liked working with him. On, we did Scooby-Doo together. We did Blackhawk together. We did a lot of weird 
things that most people have never seen. We did some things for overseas publishers and such. Um, you know, in, in this business, um, getting the comics done, getting them written and drawn and lettered and inked and colored, sometimes is a very arduous process. And not all people are as dependable as Dan was or as Jack was or, um, or as I'd like to think I was or am and or Sergio is. And sometimes it's a huge fight and a struggle to uh, get the books produced and you're, you feel it's a victory if they get the press at all. Right. With Dan, it was never a problem. Every single thing we did for years and years and years, he would get the script, he would draw it perfectly, he would get it in early. Uh, my biggest problem with Dan, honest to God, was he'd call me up and he'd say, I'm going to be finishing the script tonight. Can you give me something else to draw tomorrow? <laughs> and I'd have to sit down and write something that night because I didn't want him to be sitting there with no work. And I'd write the next issue of Cross. I start writing the next issue of Crossfire, and I'd sit all day here writing pages and writing pages. And this is before fax machines or, or the internet. I would then have to, uh, you know, at two a.m. No, at uh, at two a.m. I'd have to have the script out to the post office by the LAX airport. So I would write without stopping until about one fifteen print out what I had, and of course the printer would jam, and I'd jump on my car and I'd drive like a maniac to this post office by the airport and hand in the script. And through a fluke of the post office, the way it worked, I was sending these express mail, Dan would have it literally in uh, five hours, because he lived up in Santa Barbara, and they would just put it on a plane, they took it to Santa Barbara, it would come into the post office up there, and the guy there would see it was for Dan, and he'd phone Dan and say, we just got a, a package for you. And Dan would get in his car at 7 a.m. and drive over and pick up the script and start drawing it. And meanwhile, I would have come home and collapsed, and I'd wake up, and there'd be a message on my machine from Dan. I'm not exaggerating any of this, I promise. And he'd say, hey... Script's going great. I'll be. I'll get all this done today. Can you get me something more tomorrow? <laughs> and I was. And the process would start over again. So yeah, just a joy to work with, and everything I, I was happy with everything he ever drew. Going back, if I can, Mark to to grew. I see. Yes, you said the 120 issues, and it looks like it was a 10 year span from uh, 1985 to 95. But meanwhile, under Epic, there were the uh, Death of Grew graphic novel in '88, and the Life yeah. of Grew in '93. If somebody wanted to um, kind of crunch on, you know, getting to know the character, would you point them in the the life or the death? I know they came in, in maybe a different sequence, but yeah, well, the death the death preceded the life. Uh, mm-hmm. um, you know, I I, grew, I always thought that one of the things Gru had going for it was that you could kind of pick up any issue and figure it out pretty quickly. Uh, we didn't do a huge number of continued stories. Did a lot of standalones. Um, until later, they people kept asking us for multi-issue story arcs because then you can release those later as, you know, as a paperback. But um, uh, I always thought you could pick up any issue if 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 you came across a copy of the Death of Gru, that I think is as good an introductory well, lesson to the character as anything. But there's a lot of jumping on places. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Life of Gru a little less so, 
but any one of them will work. Gotcha. This and also, it. this is not the deepest. You know, I mean, you know, the premise here is this is here's a stupid barbarian, and he's and when he rushes into battle, he usually does the wrong thing at the uh, he does the the wrong thing at the wrong time, and he does the wrong thing at the right time, then he does the right thing at the wrong time. And, and things just get worse and worse and worse. That's not a difficult concept for most people to grasp. They, they just have to look at Washington and they see the same thing being done. Now, in regards to a lot of, you know, your introduction into the world of creating comics, you know, in, I believe, the 1970s, correct? Well, I started really in the 1970, I actually tell people that um, the Silver Age of Comics ended the day I got in. And that's not the math is not far off of that. I literally the, the minute I started writing comics, the Silver Age was over. One of the things is you know with your relationship with Jack Kirby, I remember reading somewhere that you were supposed to be doing you were supposed to I believe take over uh, New Gods and stuff like that afterwards. Well, the the this is Jack's period his tenure at DC was not very happy in the long run. Um, and an awful lot of things that were supposed to happen did not happen. In fact, I could, I'm writing a, this, and it's going to be done soon, this very big exhaustive biography of Jack, and you're going to be amazed how many things that were supposed to happen got aborted or never got, reached the final stage. The idea initially was that Jack was going to be DC's, invent brand new forms of comics. He was going to do He's going to lead the way into comics that were not on cheap newsprint for, you know, 32 pages for, at the time we started, you know, 15 cents. Um, and he was going to do magazines and books and graphic novels. If Jagged had his way, he would have been doing graphic novels before anyone else was doing graphic novels. But DC was in the business of doing these little, you know, 32-page flimsy printed comics. And once Jack had severed ties with Marvel and signed his DC contract, they steered him more into the... It became more like, well, we'll get to those, Jack, but first we need you to do more conventional comics. So we had these characters that DC wanted, which were called... which came to be called the Fourth World characters. They weren't then. At that time, the, the umbrella title for the series was The New Gods, and... The, Orion, the book we now think of as New Gods was going to be called Orion. And at some point, it was, got changed to Orion of the New Gods. And at some point, it got changed to New Gods. But the idea was that New Gods was the blanket title for what turned out to be initially three comics. And, uh, and then Fourth World eventually took over that umbrella title status. And Jack was going to launch them and pass them on to other people to do under his editorial supervision. Uh, kind of the same way he launched Avengers and then Don Heck took over drawing it, or he launched the X-Men and then Werner Roth took over drawing it. And um, Steve and or I were going to do a lot of the writing. And there were a number of artists mentioned as to taking over the artwork. And when people, you know, when I see, read the list, people act like that was a, a firm plan. It wasn't. It was like just talking points. Well, we'll probably get this guy. We'll probably get this guy. But we didn't ever make firm plans for any of that. And once the books began to sell well, which they did at the outset, um, DC people said, "Well, we got to have Jack do them. We got to. We, we, we can't. We can't 
risk you know killing these wonderful new books by suddenly turning them over to other people so jack would keep doing them and then later when the sales began to falter then they said well we've got to keep jack on these things because he's the one who can make them sell so he never got off them and then when they suddenly decided they wanted to have jack try to do something different they quote suspended unquote uh... the books which you know even then jack knew that the word suspended meant canceled a nicer way of saying it. And he did Commandy and the Demon, both of which were created to be comics that he would launch and then turn over to other people. Uh, I helped him with the script on the first issue of Commandy, although I don't think I deserve any credit for what's in that issue, because the idea was that if, if, if it had all gone the way Jack originally planned, he would have only done an issue or two, and I would have taken over the writing, and another artist would have taken over the drawing with number three or four. And then DC, and said, oh, wait a minute, Commandy looks like a great comic. We've got to keep Jack on it and go with our strongest person. So he never got to hand Commandy off during the time he was at DC. Same with the Demon. Going back, Mark, to um, convention stuff, I see that there was, in 1970, going to the Golden State Comic Con in San Diego, where it, I guess it really started. Yeah. And you're one of a handful of people who's been to them since they first started on it. And can you recall what that uh, was like going to the first one? And I can recall every second of that day. <laughs> um, Jack was very instrumental in Comic Con getting started at all. Uh, there was a group of of kids who who started this thing. Uh, the one who seems to get way more of the credit than he deserves is a man named Shell Dorf. Uh, but also there was a man named Ken Kruger who really was instrumental in starting it. There were fellows who kind of have a local comic club up there, Mike Towery, Richard Alf, Bill Lund, Scott Shaw. And again, I'm going to leave some number of names out. And a couple, a lot of them came up and visited Jack to get his blessings and agreement to appear. Uh, I met Scott Shaw, who became one of my closest friends, at Jack Kirby's house. On one of those expeditions, I met Dave Stevens, who became one of my friends, closest friends, at another of those ex- expeditions, and a lot of other people. I have, still have friends I met at Jack Kirby's house, and uh, Jack was the one of the big build guest stars of the first San Diego Con, and uh, I went down. Steve Sherman, Steve's brother Gary, my friend Bruce Simon, and I went down for one day, which was Saturday at the convention. And uh, the convention had about 300 people there, and we thought that was everyone in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, as I tell people, today you go to Comic-Con and there's 300 people ahead of you in line to buy a Diet Snapple. <laughs> but uh, Jack was instrumental in encouraging the convention to go forth. He was very instrumental encouraging them not to just combine it to comic books, you know, DC and Marvel comic books, but to make it about movies and science fiction and all these arts, which to him were related. Jack saw uh, a vision to cross-pollination of comic books and movies and comic books and TV and TV and animation and animation and comics. He, he saw that everything he created he thought could exist in every medium. When he when he you know created the new gods, he said there should be a new gods cartoon, there should be a new gods movie, there should be a new gods novel, and whatever it is, he uh, he thought it, he he used the term big picture a lot, and I thought Jack thought in big pictures, and 
one of the things that I tell people, and they sometimes don't believe me, but it's about the second or third San Diego Con, Jack made a comment, and he said, uh, the, the convention swelled up, and, you know, we had 300 of the first one, the second one they had like 1,000, I think, and then 1,500, and everybody's going, my God, this thing is is multiplying like crazy, and we kind of thought the upward limit of it was like five or 6,000 or 10,000 maybe tops. And Jack said, no, eventually this convention is going to take over the city of San Diego. The entire city will be, about, will be a comic book convention. And then he said, this is almost verbatim, it may be exactly verbatim, he said, this is the place where Hollywood is going to come every year to sell the movies they made last year and to find out what they're going to make next year. And we kind of went like, yeah, right, Jack. Mm -hmm. Jack was way ahead of us on a lot of stuff, and we kind of you know, humored him. We loved him. And if we didn't understand what he said or if he said something that sounded really far-fetched, we'd go, yeah, okay, you're right, Jack, sure, yeah. And we give each other looks like, you know, well, that ain't going to happen. And it all happened. You know, you go to, you've been to San Diego Convention. We take over the city. And there's Hollywood is there to find out what they're going to make next year. Yeah. It's, uh, uh, it was a stunningly accurate prediction at a time when no one else would have thought of that. And, you know, in regards to a lot of his ideas and just the impact, it's kind of funny seeing now all these years later, DC, for example, they are continually rolling out the content of Jack Kirby related merchandise, the books, the collections and whatnot. And they make a point of it to include Jack's face, the, the little illustration on the spine of the yeah. books. Now, on the flip side, Marvel They'll they'll do things like the king size Kirby book where it's like a it's a book as big as a house or a mountain, but you know just like really really large stuff and it doesn't really put a face to the you know the person you know. Well, they're doing a little of that in conjunction with the new Eternals projects. They actually have at uh, uh, Disney World in Florida. There's an exhibit of Jack Kirby with photos of him and everything. Um, Marvel has had the hamper been hampered a little bit by the fact that the dynamic of the company is built around promoting Stan Lee. And at times in the past, there were times when um, people at Marvel felt that Stan Lee was the product and he was to be pushed, that his name, you know, was, was to be pushed the same way Walt Disney's was in the Disney world, Disney organization. Right. And there wasn't room for Jack in that equation. And I thought he was wronged many, many times. I've said this other places. And uh, Stan got, you know, way more credit than even he uh, would have told you he deserved if you talked to him in private. There was a public Stanley and a private Stanley. I knew both of them. Uh, but uh, Jack, uh, you know, he he DC was very nice to the company. Has DC has a, a, a tradition of of being very nice to Jack and respectful. It has to do with the people who ran D.C. at times, Paul Levitz and Jeanette Kahn and, and others there, certainly. Uh, one of the joys of my life, and this is one of those things I, could, I get zero credit for this in the world. When I was working with Jack, he, the people who were then running D.C. Comics, who, of course, are far, no, not one of them is anywhere near the company anymore. Some of them are 
long gone. Uh, we're, we're, didn't t- think that much of New Gods Forever People or Mr. Miracle. They, their attitude was, no one will ever make toys of these characters. No one will ever put them on TV. This stuff will never be reprinted. Uh, you know, these, these books are, you know, we, we can reprint Superman stories forever. That's a valuable asset for us. What good is Mr. Miracle to us? And I lived to see, Jack lived to see there be toys of Mr. Miracle and Darkseid and, and Orion. He lived to see um, the, these, those characters turn up in animated projects at Hanna-Barbera. Uh, he, he, and and he, his widow lived to see some of the major, first major reprintings of that work. And I am very proud that I lived to see that stuff come out over and over again, be made into major motion pictures. I have a shelf here in my office of Jack Kirby reprint books, and it's not there because I wrote the forwards in most of them. It's there because I like looking at that spine, and the spines are with Jack's picture or Jack's name, huge, and realize that you know, the, the stuff that, that the people at D.C. thought was kind of worthless in 1970 is now going into its 10th printing. Mm. It's on hard covers with classy paper. It's being reviewed in the New York Times. Uh, it, it's, it's that satisfaction you get when, when you realize that someone who was kind of arrogant was absolutely, totally wrong. That every prediction they made was wrong, and that Jack was right. And that, uh, you know, that DC now wishes there were a hundred issues of New Gods, that they hadn't stopped that book, that they wish they had uh, spun off Dark Side and spun off other characters in that book that Jack wanted. Uh, a lot of the stuff they considered hits then has not been reprinted, or has always been reprinted once. But uh, I, I have lost track, literally, of how many times the first. Kirby run on New Gods for People, Mr. Miracle, have been reprinted. I know I've written at least forwards for six reprintings. Of That's each tremendous. Of those books, and probably maybe more than that. Uh, and, and if you read any of those uh, forwards, you will hint, you will, you will get a hint in there of a little gloating. I am gloating on behalf of Jack, because mm-hmm. that's his victory. Certainly not mine. Uh, he's not here for that beaming, I told you so, so I have to do it for him. And a few years ago, I actually ended up writing a letter to uh, Steve Ditko before he had passed. And in the letter, I had mentioned that, you know, it's kind of amazing that his run, for example, of Spider-Man is always going to be in print. And it's kind of like how Jack's run of the Fantastic Four will always be in print. The Avengers, this, that, the other thing. Not just because they introduce the characters, but because the impact they had, not just on the comic book industry, but pop culture in general. And I wonder how, I wonder how Jack would feel about knowing that, that his stuff will always be in print. I can tell you exactly how, how Jack would have, would have felt. I can, this is, I, I, people always ask me, what is, what would Jack think of this? And and I don't want to put words in his mouth uh, Jack, as a thinker, thought on a whole different level than anybody else, and certainly less different than me. I can't. I, I'm very fussy about not trying to put my opinions into his mouth. However, I can tell you with some certainty what Jack would have said. I can't tell you how he would have said it, but he would have had a much more modest version of "I told you so." Mm-hmm. Yeah. He would have had a charming, non-egotistical version of 
Of course, I knew this stuff would be reprinted. I knew this stuff would be hung in galleries. I knew this stuff would be studied and that it would be made into major motion pictures. One of the problems Jack had at Marvel when he was there in the, in the you know, late 60s was he was trying to get them to give him more money. He deserved more money. The company was hugely successful. And you can, you can uh, debate forever how much of that was due to him, but certainly a very, nobody there denied it was a large chunk. They just thought they could get away without paying it to him. And he told the people he was dealing with there, um, someday, you know, Thor and Hulk and Captain America and Fantastic Four and X-Men even, and, which X-Men looked like a throwaway book at the time, even X-Men will be major motion pictures and Hollywood will be flocking the way they now go to see James Bond movies. And he told them that, and they thought he was crazy. They thought he was insane. And they, you know, they kind of like, and they made jokes behind his back about how he, you know, he was a little off, uh, out of, and, 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 you know, again, they were absolutely 100% wrong. So he, without gloating the way you or I would gloat if, if we were that right, um, Jack would have said, of course, yeah, yeah. He was a very humble man. Jack had a way of being able to say, uh, I think I'm the best artist in the business without sounding egotistical and without putting anyone else down because he was also a tremendous fan of Steve Ditko and Wally Wood and Gil Kane and Marie Severin and John Romita and all those other people. He loved them, respected them, thought that they were undervalued by the business thought that they were capable of even bigger successes than the stuff they were doing. Uh, he was a very sweet man. That's why you see so much uh, devotion to him from those of us who knew him. I know some people think it's excessive. They think we're making this guy into too much of a, of a, you know, a real-world god. He was a new uh, god. But if you, knew, yeah, if you knew Jack, you'd understand why people loved him so. And you'd understand how responsible he was for so many good things that have happened. And I don't mean just, you know, somebody else got to, you know, make a Captain America miniseries or a Thor t-shirt. I mean, the way he inspired so much stuff that doesn't have his obvious fingerprints on, but, but they're there. He inspired writers around him. He inspired artists around him. He inspired... Uh, he, he, he treated everyone with such dignity. I, I, I know this is getting gushy and mushy, and people are thinking, you know, that I'm, I'm uh, the cheerleader. exaggerating. But uh, uh, he was the most, one of the most amazing people who ever walked this industry. Uh, and there's a reason for the devotion. Uh, when I got to New York in 1970 and went around the Marvel offices and the DC offices, and Steve and I spent a day with Steve Ditko that year, and we went to the conventions and met... I met everybody, practically, who'd done comic books I'd love in a period of about one week. And when I said, uh, I'm Jack Kirby's assistant, very shameless name drop, which I dropped every place I went, uh, I got all this love. Bill Everett hugged me. Bill Everett is this older man who, you know, had been an alcoholic, kind of, if he was, to a certain extent. He, did, he didn't look like a hugger. He hugged me. He said, give this to Jack. Tell him he's the greatest guy. I miss him and love him so much. 
And I got that from everybody in the business who understood what Jack did. You didn't get that from the guys in the business offices. They just thought, oh, yeah, he filled a lot of pages. We could, get a, we could have gotten somebody else to do those. But the people in the trenches, the people who actually worked on those comics, the people who saw what Jack did and who met him and saw him help them, he helped all the other guys who worked for Marvel. They'd call him for advice sometimes. How to, what do I do on these pages? Well, have you got an idea for a cover, whatever it is? <clears throat> He'd always come up with something. He'd always help everybody. He was a very giving man, and I'd like to think that in my association I learned some things from him about how to be a better human being. I think I could see that. I'm not going to suggest I could ever apply them. No, but I think, Mark, you've (laughs) described pretty well how, you know, being there with Jack and so on, and I could see that in your telling of it, how, yeah, Jack's saying, I told you so, not in a a downtrodden kind of way, pointing the the finger down or pointing his nose up, but just like, you know, you didn't listen to me, but hey, here it is. This is is what happened. I can see him uh, being confident in, in the work that he did, to say that it's going to go exponentially well with all these titles and characters. Um, and he, so it sounded like, again, he's confident in what he has done. And, you know, he would do a put-up-or-shut-up kind of thing, possibly. If, if you had something that approached or was on sort of a similar level as his, then, okay, let's let's see. Let's see what's good, what's not good, and, and things. And he would offer, I think, not uh, condescending criticism or anything, just like, okay, well, maybe this needs a little bit of work if that was the scenario. So I, I get that. Yeah, he, he was never condescending. Mm-hmm. He he encouraged everybody, including some people I would have told to give it up, frankly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that was in his nature. He, the only things, if you, if you showed your work to Jack, the only negative comments you could get from him, and he'd be very kind in delivering these, were either you aren't working hard enough or it's too derivative of other people. Come up with your own idea. Okay. If you if you had handed Jack work that was identical to his, he would have said, "Go get your own style. Don't draw like me." You would, you know, it, it's it's, and that's not an insult. That's pretty sound advice. Yeah. Um, he loved creativity and he loved inspiring people. And nothing made Jack happier than when people came up to him at a convention, as many many did, and said, "Oh, Mr. Kirby, because of you, I became a." And then. Any creative art. It could be a musician, uh, an artist, a magician, uh, interpretive dance. If you were doing something creative, he loved it. Did he, Mark, and, I'm just thinking yeah. of it now, did he prefer the drawing over the writing component of it? Um, no, no. Him, him the, it was all about the story being told. Mm-hmm. Jack, Jack was, a, was a writer in his head first and foremost. He just happened to be the guy who drew the pictures. Yeah. And and he did not. He he would much rather have written without drawing than drawn without writing. Wow. In okay. Fact, didn't in know fact, that. he had a problem working from other people's scripts. He tended not to follow them, and and even when he was ordered to, as a couple couple times, he his mind just went. In fact, he didn't even follow his own script sometimes. <sighs> there was something very improvisational about his work. When I was working with Jack, he would sit Steve and me down, and he'd tell us the whole plot of the next issue of Forever People, or something like that, whatever, whatever he was, was next on the list to be drawn. And we would say, Steve and I would say, hey, that sounds great, Jack, which was about the extent of our contribution. <laughs> we, didn't, we didn't have a lot of input beyond, hey, that's terrific. And then we did one of the greatest things we did for him, which was we'd go home and let, let him work. We were very good at that. We deserve a lot of credit for, for going home. And... Uh, 
and then Jack would draw the new issue out, and then we'd go out there the following week, and it'd be sitting there in pencil, and Jack would hand it to me to read through and kind of proofread and, and uh, you know, see if I caught any glaring continuity errors or anything like that. And, uh, 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 and they, uh, uh, you know, and then I read the issue, and it'd be a completely different story. Yeah. It would not be. It would, it would be better, probably, than what he told us, or different. And I'd say, well, what happened to the scene with the so and so? And he'd go, what? I don't remember that scene. That's what the story turned into. Gotcha. I have one other uh, thing about your work, but just to go back to a previous point. So you had the day in New York City visiting the DC offices, running into Sergio, but eventually you and Steve made that three thirty appointment with Stan and got to the Marvel offices. Correct. Yes, that's correct. Yes. It was written up in the bullpen bulletins, actually. Yeah. Was that a slow um, month? What? I mean. Well, it was the first item on that. I'll, I'll tell you a Stan Lee story here. You want a Stan Lee story, right? Sure. Um, uh, we, were, we wanted to see Stan. We were introduced to him. And the first thing he says to us is, uh, God, I'm so busy these days. I, if you were to ask me what's going on in Iron Man this month, I couldn't tell you. In other words, don't ask me about anything. <laughs> you know. So we talked for a while there, and he was very enthusiastic. Stan was very charming. He made everybody feel good. Um, people who went to Stan in the last uh, uh, years of his life, where he was you know, on the convention circuit selling his autograph for large sums of money, will tell you that he had a way of making you feel like he was your fan. Mm. Uh, he was very charming that way, very you know, disarmingly charming sometimes. And he made us feel good and such. And while we were there, we had the phone rang. And there was this thing that at the time called ACBA, the Academy of Comic Book Arts, which was a society of writers and artists and publishers. And it was run by publishers. Carmen Infantino from D.C., Stan Lee from Marvel, and Jim Warren from the Warren Company were the kind of the board of directors, the officers of it. And they were having a cocktail party the following Saturday night at the comic convention. This is, we, were, we were in New York for a week or two, and the comic convention was in the middle of the state. So on the phone, Jim Warren has phoned. We're interrupted because Jim Warren has phoned to say that he got Will Jordan to entertain at the ACBA cocktail party. And Stan Lee said, that's great, Jim. It'll be terrific. Good work. Will Jordan, God, you did a great job. Terrific. He hangs up and he turns to us and says, who's Will Jordan? <laughs> so I said, because I am a fount of show business trivia, and I remember everything I've ever seen on TV and such, Ed Sullivan is the comedian who was on the Ed Sullivan show dozens and dozens of times, usually imitating Ed Sullivan and other celebrities. He did the, when people do impressions of Ed Sullivan, they're doing Will Jordan doing Ed Sullivan. He was famous for that. And Stan goes, oh, that's interesting. So we were there for about another 10 minutes or so. And then uh, Stan says, listen, I've got to get some work done here. In fact, I've got to write a bullpen page, and I'm going to write it about you guys, because you're terrific. And we go, okay, so we leave. And Stan is like literally rolling paper into his typewriter. This is in the days of typewriters. Mm-hmm. And starting to type as we're let out the door. Our audience with Stan is over. So a couple months later, the bullpen page comes out that he wrote that day. 
And the first item is about how great it was meeting Mark Evanier and sturdy Stevie Sherman. He called us young zingy with a guise. And it's, you know, it's on the bullpen page. Being, Stan's raving like it's a big event <laughs> that he met us. Stan was very good at taking anything. You know, Stan could write a big article about, I had a, the greatest cheese sandwich in the world, you know, make it sound important. The mm-hmm. next item on it, if you find the bullpen page, is he talks about what a smash hit the ACBA cocktail party, which at the time he wrote this had not happened, <laughs> was, and how great Will Jordan was and how hysterical he was. And he said, Will Jordan's the guy you've seen on the Ed Sullivan show. He just quoted what I said. It's in there. Will Jordan just talked about a really thing sad said, thing. <laughs> is it, told him was in the bullpen page. Ooh, and and I, I, this is not faulting Stan. You know, I mean, I, it's, I was kind of amazed. He was a good salesman. He was a good promotional guy for Marvel. And he, and he did stuff like that a lot. Uh, and uh, that was my introduction to Stan Lee. Now, going back over to Jack, um, one of the things that I've realized over the past few years is more and more you hear the quote-unquote vocal minority get louder and louder to the point where it's now being not the minority but the majority – And it's fans that are diehard Kirby fans. And it's like, it's infecting everyone. Everyone's realizing, wait a minute. Jack was, you know, one of the big deals. And, you know, I'm not going to say, not going to name names, but this past year I was at Toy Fair and I was speaking with a, uh, one of the heads of one of the toy companies. And he had mentioned, you know, we're talking about like a Stan Lee action figure. And he goes, what about Jack Kirby? And I look at him and I'm like, I would buy that. And, you know, it's it's so interesting seeing the impact he has. And, you know, there's so many people, the cult of Kirby, essentially, that it's becoming. And I don't know where I'm going with this, but <laughs> I'm, I'm just I'm just going to um, filibuster for a minute. No, um, right, go ahead. the the whole thing about this that I really enjoy nowadays is you get books about the man you get. You know, like the one that you have done, the one that uh, Tom Scholey just released. It's it's absolutely crazy to see the impact. And not just, you know, books. There's a magazine about him, The Kirby Collector. Yeah. And how would he have reacted to that kind of element of they se- – like people are celebrating him to that point where he's a – he is a historical figure. Essentially yeah. how he's a modern-day, you know, historical figure. Okay. How would he have reacted to that reaction that he has as a you know a now historical esque kind of figure? Um, I think he would have been pleased. Um, the number one thing in Jack's life was providing for his loved ones, and he would have been pleased if his family. Jack wanted two things out of Marvel. He wanted recognition for what he'd done, and he wanted financial. Uh, security. I mean, he would have liked millions of dollars, but he, the, the the core issue here was for the family to be financially secure, his kids to be financially, his widow to be financially secure, his kids to be financially secure. This is not uncommon among people who grew up in the Depression era. The measure of a man was that he provided for his family, that he gave them groceries and a place to live and, you know, braces on their teeth, whatever whatever it was. That was, uh, it's a very old-fashioned value, but it was the same value as my father, who was roughly the same age, had. 
Uh, it was the same values that everybody of Jack's generation had, especially Jewish kids who grew up in something that was, you know, roughly described as poverty. Uh, you know, you didn't, if you were living in poverty, you, you might dream of being a multi-zillionaire, but you first dreamed of, of getting the family out of poverty and living decently. So um, he, Jack knew that someday he would get the proper recognition for his work. He just kind of knew that. He knew that someday a um, certain amount of money would follow that, but he didn't know if his widow, Roz, whom he loved as much as any man ever loved his wife, um, would benefit from it. He didn't know the timetable on this. He didn't know when it would happen. Uh, and I know if that's answering your question, that's the answer to your question. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Just to jump back to one other thing of your own stuff there, Mark, uh, back in the 70s, early to mid-70s, you're at Gold Key Comics or working for them, and, and the reveal that I see here is the the Wild E. Coyote story and the greatest of E's. Yeah. Um, want me to explain about that? <laughs> yeah, briefly, um, sure, of course. I was writing the Roadrunner comic book, and, you know, these are six-page, eight-page stories. You know, they, they, that's uh, they page six page eight page story has one good joke in it. One, I mean, one one gimmick, one story, one 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 thing that makes it different from all the others. And I decided we'd do a story that was about um, what the E and I, Wild E Coyote stood for. And I said that it stood for Ethelbert. <laughs> now, and it was just a joke about we reveal what. Uh, People are mocking him because it stands for Ethelbert, and he's embarrassed because of that. Now, I didn't intend this to ever go beyond the one story, because these stories were not connected the way you know each issue of X-Men is connected, continuity-wise. In some Roadrunner stories, he had four kids and a wife. Some he had three kids and no wife. Uh, you know, in some Bugs Bunny stories, with no explanation whatsoever, he's in the Old West. You know, they just jump around. I was just going to throw in that Ethelbert, and I don't know how common I wouldn't, I'd have to look up the history of the name or something to that effect, but for us, Peter and myself here in Sullivan County, we have in Monticello an Ethelbert B. Crawford Public Library. Wow. And so I just, I, I just pulled the name out of nowhere. If, if I'd known people were going to quote it later, I would have made it stand for Evanier. But uh, I just you know? did it as one story, and... And I never intended anybody to think it applied to any other story, or that there couldn't be another story next month that sort of says so for something else, or you know whatever. I just never thought of that because, first of all, I didn't think anybody was reading the comics really at that point. And secondly, then they changed from issue to issue, where you know the, the continuity changed all the time. You know, sometimes Sylvester in the cartoons spoke, and sometimes he didn't. And then one day. It was a question on Jeopardy. <laughs> Jeopardy asked what the... Sure. I guess they got this off the Internet, which I hadn't seen. And all these people are... So, you know, without doing anything, I had managed to establish something in the uh, mythos of Warner Brothers characters, which I assume they'll ignore if they want to. Well, uh, A, I could tell you that I don't, I'd have to go back and look and see how long the library's been there. And B, I don't know what the B in Ethelbert B. Crawford stands for either, so. Well, anyway, I think 
I think the name Ethelbert, I think I got it out of a Jay Ward cartoon. I think there was a character in a fractured fairy tale named Ethelbert. But I, I'm not sure which one it was. It's in the back of my brain someplace. I just wanted this, an odd-sounding name that wasn't mm-hmm. common, or that no one would ever have guessed. Right. I didn't want it to be Edward, you know. I wanted it to be something odd. Well, now, yeah, well, I am that way, too, but that's a different occasion, so. So now, before we wrap this episode up, Mark, we want to say thank you for doing the program. Gladly, gladly. Now, how can people get a hold of you on social media and the worldwide Internet? Well, I am the easiest person to find on social media. I have a blog called www.newsfromme.com. News from me, all one word, M-E are my initials. And I've been doing it for 20 years. It's got 20,000-plus messages on it or something like that. I don't know how many I've got. Um, and if whatever you're interested in, uh, there's everything you'll ever find in the world. And I write about politics, I write about comic books, I write about television, I write about stand-up comedians, I write about cats in my backyard, uh, I write about just whatever pops into my brain. It is, it is a lot of fun each morning to get up and write something, which I don't have to get notes on, I don't have to get approvals on, I just write it and the audience gets it, or they don't get it as the case may be. Mm. And that's where I am. There's a Twitter feed and there's you know, Instagram, but you should if you want to contact me in any way or, or see what I'm doing. It all flows from that website. Now, on top of that, you also have a Jack Kirby book that just got released, I believe, re-released in paperback. Uh, a couple of years ago, yeah. Um, we did a new edition of it, uh, updated slightly with a new chapter and a smaller page format and some new artwork. And um, yeah, it's from the Abrams, Harry and Abrams Book Company. And uh, I've signed a lot of them, so they're around. I have a copy of the uh, hardcover one. I'm contemplating making the jump now to the paperback, just, you know, from Yeah, if, if, if you don't want to do that, at least go into a bookshop, stand there and read the last chapter. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> the new chapter. But, uh, yeah, I don't, I'm not trying to get... Uh, uh, I, I'm bothered sometimes by the attempt to get you to keep buying reprints of stuff you already have in this world. Right. Um, I don't mind it if I benefit financially too much, but I bought, you know, I, I don't want to force it on people uh, if they want it. So once again, Mark, it was an absolute pleasure. Thank you. I enjoyed talking to you guys. I'll talk to you anytime you want. All righty. So for The Marvelists, I'm Peter Melnick. And I'm Mark Evanier. And I'm Eddie Wilson. Excelsior. Obsessed with Marvel with our guest, Mark Evanier. And it's question number 1182. Which alien race once turned Charles Xavier into one of them? Is it the Shi'ar, the Skrulls, the Phalanx, or the Brood? Wasn't it the Brood? I think it was the Brood. We all think that. Which alien race once turned Charles Xavier into one of them? The Shi'ar, the Skrulls, the Phalanx, or the Brood? I don't think Shi'ar... No, Even why, qualifies. Why would they, you know, make him into one of their own? Yeah, right, exactly. So let's go with the brood letter D, and it is correct. Okay, it's a good start. Our track record is mildly improving. Eddie Wilson proceeds to jinx us. Going to the height of mediocrity. I'm trying to let Mark know what we might be up against. Getting to the height of mediocrity, perhaps. Insurmountable odds. For- no, they won't. They won't have anything about my issues in there. It's okay. I don't know. Four hundred twenty-two. Question is. 
What happened to the clone of Spider-Man at the end of Amazing Spider-Man number 149, which was in 1975? Uh, was it killed by an explosion? Took the place of the original Spider-Man. Though seemingly dead, he survived and would live under an alias or turned against his creator. I'd like to phone a friend, please. <laughs> oh, we didn't think of that. I, I, I didn't read the that. The clone of... Well, it's just so long ago. I, um, I read it, but then they like retconned it, and they did this, and they did that. I think it's the uh, alias, took an alias. Because we believed it died, but then it turns out, who ba doo ba doo ba We have the... Uh, I just turned it out. Survived and lived under an alias. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, I don't think took took the place of the original. That might have been for a small period of time, but then eventually... I was thinking was killed by an explosion, and then he, the real Spider-Man, gave him a decent burial, and we hopefully forgot about it. Uh, so I'm going to try letter A and go against the alias answer and see that it is wrong. <laughs> the answer is C. Lived, survived, and would live under an alias. Way to go, Peter Melnick. I try. Yeah, I guess you did. So does Macy Gray. Um, let's go up, shall we, in the numbers? And if we do four questions, Mark, that would be the max. We really don't want to push it too far. Okay, 1,022. Who is your Mungand? Spelled J-O-R... Leave my mother out of this. Can I spell this, please? <laughs> T-H-I-S-P-L-E. Your Mungand... J-O-R-M-U-N-G-A-N-D. Who is Dromungand? Is it the Midgard serpent? An immense wolf? The dwarf who forged Thor's hammer? Or one of the frost giants? Dromungand. Midgard serpent. An immense wolf. The dwarf who forged Thor's hammer? Or one of the frost gods? I'm past. I don't I have no idea. Uh-huh. Yeah, I'm going to pass as well. Ran out of front. you got to take an answer. I mean, uh, okay. F. Well, it sounds like we need to delve into the Thor book, but but it, I don't think it was the dwarf who forged Thor's hammer. They wouldn't have changed the name of that character for, you know, Avengers Endgame, correct? Mm-hmm. We, we remember, we kind of remember, but not at the moment, of course. Sure. That character's name. Peter Dinkle. Yeah. Okay. Well, that was the actor. Or Dinklage. Dinklage, thank you. See? You forgot it's it. So far off of there, too. Dromungan, Dromungan. All right, I guess I'm, I'm going to have to take the guess for the group. Um, I'm going with D, one of the Frost Giants. Here we go. No. The answer is the Midgard Serpent. Didn't I make the comment that Eddie jinxed us? Mm, audience. <sighs> Who's now dwindling? All right, just for the okay, final. It's all writing on this one now. All right, fine. <laughs> final question for today. For this episode is two zero two two. You you two two. Who is Blackheart? The answers are choices. That is one of the sons of Satanish, a costume criminal who battles Ghost Rider, the son of Mephisto, or a team of female mercenaries in Ghost Rider. See, I may know this. You're you're saying Blackheart is a son of Mephisto. Yeah. Okay, as opposed to uh, one of the sons of Satanish, or a costume criminal who battles Ghost Rider, or a team of female mercenaries in Ghost Rider. Correct. 
Uh, Mark? I have no answer. Okay. <laughs> this is from the uh, Anne Nascenti uh, run of uh, Daredevil. So Of Daredevil. Mm-hmm. Well, I kind of wanted to go with Costume Criminal Battles Ghost Rider, but that's where I first heard it in the Danny Ketch 90s run of, of Blackheart. But... Yeah, Blackheart's like this uh, demon-looking thing. So let's go with Peter's answer, and that is C. And it is correct. Redemption, perhaps. I remember the character there's, from Marvel vs. Capcom, too. There's a, dare, there's a Daredevil title, Redemption. Okay. Thank you again, Mark. We're out. Gladly. Thank you, guys.